Hey, my name is Chris Brennan, and you're listening to the Astrology Podcast. In this episode, I'm going to be talking with astrologer Nick Dagan-Best here in the studio in Denver, and we're going to be talking about generational astrology and long-term outer planet cycles that, in fact, that um, impact or reflect entire describe describe correlate <laughs> synchronize with entire generations or or cohort, cohorts or groups of people. Yeah. All right. So. Um, for those wondering, today is Sunday, July tenth, twenty twenty-two, starting at what is it? One one fifty-two p.m. One fifty-two p.m. in Denver, Colorado, with late Libra rising again. This is day three of us recording a series of podcasts here in the studio. All right, so we're going to talk about generational astrology. I already did a little like mini treatment of this topic with Kira Tabor in, um, several episodes ago, where we focused in on one group which was millennials and some of the differences between that subgeneration but i wanted to do a broader discussion about generational astrology with you because it's actually a really interesting and really vast topic that kind of overlaps with you know the, that's a study in and of itself like just in sociology or in history different generations of people that are born uh, and live during specific periods in history mm -hmm. And one of the most famous ones, of course, in like, like the United States, for example, is like the baby boomer generation, right? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, I mean, the, there, there have always been uh, uh, generations of people, but um, in the 20th century, uh, you saw a new sort of cultural and economic definition arise for every successive new generation. Um, because uh, with the sort of cultural and technological acceleration uh, of the post-war years, um, you got these very distinct groups of people that were more distinct than ever from generation to generation. That's based on like a variety of different like social and economic and demographic. Demographic, okay. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Well, the baby boomers, one of the very first thing that defines them that that gives them their name is the fact that there was a lot of them in the post-war years um all these returning soldiers particularly on the allied side uh um came home they they had um you know in this country they had uh, the gi bill so a lot of them were going to university and they're starting families they're getting cheap homes suburbs are starting to be built and they have a lot of kids you, you have a generation that has a lot of kids so and we can see that on the graphs of just this huge spike in the population and in the birth rate. And I think the usual time frame for the baby boomers is like mid nineteen forties to like the early sixties or something. Yeah, about that. Uh, I've seen it go to nineteen sixty four. Uh, some people argue for splitting that baby boom generation in in half, sort of from like the mid forties to the mid fifties, and then the late fifties to the early sixties. Um. But yeah, the, and and you know, there's so much to def that defines them. First of all, um, there were so many of them that they had an economic force. So, for instance, you know, transistor radios, television, rock and roll, you know, the the uh, and and cinema. Um, so many of these sort of uh, cultural uh, um, artifacts that were were just coming into being at this time when this generation was coming of age um, was aiming itself at this very large demographic um you know because it made economic sense 
Um, and these kids had disposable income and some of them are even getting cars, you know, the, the, and they're the first generation to have any of this stuff, you know, their, their own record player, as opposed to the family sitting around the radio, like their parents would have done. Right. So that's interesting. So it can sometimes the generations can be influenced or defined partially by like technology and new technological developments that are available to them in certain time frames that weren't available earlier or might even become obsolete in later generations. Absolutely. I mean, certainly in this in this 20th century context and, and leading into the 21st century, that's been absolutely true from generation to generation. You know, I'm Gen X, so we played video games in arcades, which the boomers did not do. And then by the time your generation, the millennials came along, you were mostly doing that at home on, you know, um, um, consoles. Yeah, unfortunately, uh, arcades kind of died out there. Yeah. Exactly. But that was, but when I was young, that's exactly where you went to play video games. I mean, there were the, there were the nascent consoles, you know, Atari Pac-Man and stuff and Pong and, you know, the kind of stuff that you millennials would find very quaint. Yeah. Really, um, really advanced stuff. Right. Right. Um, but the arcades were fun, but that was, that was a, a phenomenon. That was a, a sort of a, 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 you know, little, uh, interval in history that really, uh, pertained to my generation's adolescent years. I mean, I think about that all the time with the past decade and the rise of mobile phones and how mm. there's something about this decade where we all have these little, you know, tablet looking devices that we carry around. And that's been such a revolution with like apps and all websites have converted to mobile and all the different things you can do now that everybody has a walking full fledged computer in their pocket. Right. But that there's something about that form factor that I think in a few decades we'll probably look back on and we'll look weird or quaint in and of itself. Exactly. I mean, all this stuff sort of does. Um, you know, television, when I was growing up, it, it had been such a, a cultural force for both the baby boomers and Generation X. Uh, but eventually, like when you take a step back and you look at it, its place in a broader history, you realize like television was just like one stage in this broader transformation that's been going on that went from, you know, radio to silent cinema to sound cinema to television, to, you know, now what's emerging on the internet, which is sort of not quite television, not quite cinema. Like these mediums are even sort of blending um, as they get phased out or, or completely, um, you know, they re regenerate in a very different sense than they used to exist. Yeah. Uh, we, I talked about that a lot with Kent by an episode on artificial intelligence and well, the episode actually on virtual reality, because we were just talking about how it involved the blending of so many different pieces of technologic technology that came apart or came about independently, but then eventually crossed wires and got melded into something new and, and unique. Exactly. Whereas in my day, it just seemed like, well, television's just it. Like we've arrived and this is the medium that, you know, probably, you know, we would have imagined would have just kept going, you mm -hmm. know, maybe you'd get a few more channels here and there, but, um, yeah, it was such a defined medium and it seems completely, um, you know, it still exists on the periphery, but it's not the cultural force that it once was. Yeah. So, okay. So there's, so sociologists or historians sometimes like try to define these different generations or these groups or cohorts of people. And one of the things to bring the astrology in that's really interesting is that astrologers, you know, and sociologists do that, they sometimes have debates about like when one cohort begins and when another ends or, or what have you. And it can be a little bit up for debate in terms of when those start and end dates are. 
um, even if there's some like general agreement about certain groups. But when it comes to astrology, we actually have a, a tool potentially that can be used to identify generations of people from a different standpoint. And sometimes you do see overlaps between what the astrological generations might indicate and what sociologists are already indicating. So for example, with the baby boomer generation, a lot of astrologers associate that with when Pluto is going through Leo. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Very much. Um, and then um, in 1956, um, Pluto goes into Virgo. So what was the time frame on Pluto and Leo entire in its entirety? Uh, it's uh, what is it? There's three ingresses in the late 30s. By 1939, just as uh, the Nazis invade Poland, you have Pluto making its final ingress to Leo, um, with Saturn, I believe, in Taurus, as I recall, um, and you know, making a square. But that's that's the third and final ingress into Leo. So from late 1939 right up until 1956, Pluto's in Leo. Um, so that covers, you know, specifically the 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 children born during the war between 1939 and 45 aren't technically considered baby boomers, but culturally they really belong more to the baby boomer culture than say the people born in the 1930s, um, who are called the silent or greatest generation. Or they're at the tail end of that, really. They're kind of, you know, that's the thing is a lot of these things are so broad, they need to be broken down. Uh, but Pluto had been in Cancer since the beginning of the First World War. In fact, that was when I was studying astrology, that was one of the first things that struck me. You look at outer planets and just the fact that the First World War began just as Pluto was making its ingress into Cancer. And then the Second World War began just as Pluto was making its ingress into Leo. That was just one of those early things that sort of spoke to me about, you know, oh, there might really be something to this astrology business. And, um, you know, th these wars are, are, quite central to how we've wound up defining generations the way that we do in, in present day. I mean, there's nothing that changed the world more than those two wars. Right. Yeah. So, um, yeah. So that's one of the main access points has been outer planets, like slow moving outer planets, because planets like Pluto, for example, how many years is its complete cycle? Oh, uh, yeah, I should have that on the tip of my tongue. Like Two seventy or something, something like that. Yeah, yeah. yeah. A very long, almost three century long span of time, and it has a highly elliptical orbit, so it actually spends different periods of time in different signs. But regardless, it ends up being like very long track, like spans of time for the most part. Yeah, it's about two and a half centuries. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and um, and yeah, exactly. I mean, if you think about it, um, Pluto has just done one complete revolution since. The time of the American Revolutionary War, uh, where, where we find ourselves at the return of sort of like the midway through that Revolutionary War. Mm -hmm. um, Pluto moved from Capricorn into Aquarius in the middle of that war. And in 2025, we're going to be having Pluto move into Aquarius. So that's how long it's taken. We've gone from powdered wigs to, you know, tattoo sleeves in mm -hmm. those 260 years or whatever it's been. George Washington didn't have a. He didn't have the tats. No blackout sleeve, like no. a really gnarly, like tribal tattoos. I could imagine Thomas Paine having that, but yeah. no. But but you know he was. But uh, I don't think even he did. Yeah, he was out there. Yeah, yeah exactly. Um, all right. So I, I'm finding a premise here, which is really basic and fundamental and obvious one to astrologers. But if somebody was a non-astrologer listening to this, one of the premises is if 
part of the basic premise of astrology as we know it, for example, sun sign astrology or what people now know of as mainstream astrology, which is like your big three, your sun, moon, and rising signs, if that describes something about your personality. But then those placements, you know, the moon changes signs every two and a half days. The ascendant changes signs about every couple of hours, and the sun changes signs every month. So a lot of the inner planets move pretty quickly, and those placements are a lot more unique for individuals. But the thing is, once you get to outer planets, is that outer planets are spending years and sometimes entire decades in the same signs of the zodiac, and therefore entire groups and entire generations of people share that exact, almost that same placement, which leads to, from an astrological standpoint, some sort of commonality between large groups of people, just theoretically or abstractly. That's right. Um, like for instance, Jupiter, you know, takes twelve about twelve years, just under twelve years, to go through the zodiac. So you'll have Jupiter changing sign about once a year, you know, on average. Um, Saturn is a twenty-nine year cycle, so you have about it's, I think it's two and a half years or so that Saturn spends in every single sign. So let's say like when you're in school, everyone in your grade probably has Saturn in the same sign as you, um, and and even the kids in the grade before or after you. But if you're in a school with say five grades, then you've got you know probably two or three Saturn signs covered uh, over the course of all the students in that school. Uh, then we go to Uranus. Uranus uh, takes about seven years; it spends seven years in each of the twelve signs. It has an eighty-four year cycle. So definitely, you know, over the course of a, a given decade, all the kids in a given high school will probably have Uranus either in the same sign or maybe you know in adjacent signs if if they're born in between. But it's entirely possible. To have all the student body of a of a given uh, high school or university or what have you, and they all have Uranus in the same sign. That's entirely possible. Yeah. So then they sometimes like will experience sometimes similar cultural shifts at the same time as a group when there's other planetary shifts that happen in the sky, and then you can have things like you know Star Wars being released in in 1977, and just the that that hitting that generation of younger people as it did in the specific way that it did at that time. Exactly. Um, I was nine years old when Star Wars came out. You know, um, my parents were big cinephiles, but it was just beyond them. You know, uh, my parents are about two years younger than George Lucas, so it didn't. You know, even though they were just only just turning thirty, and and still. You know, part of the the cultural zeitgeist, Star Wars definitely was for kids. Uh, maybe you know there might have been some kids a little bit older than me, but not more than three, four years old, I would think, um, who who were as you know dazzled by the movie as my generation. Um, this this would have been you know kids with um, Pluto and Virgo, Uranus and Virgo, um, who would have been watching Star Wars and. As I was, and and you know, um, and yes, indeed, that made this huge cultural impact uh, and in turn triggered all these sort of technical revolutions as well uh, the introduction of Dolby sound into film cinemas um, and and sort of special effects of course which uh, just kept getting more and more sophisticated after that right and then it's funny we were talking yesterday I think privately about how then you know Empire Strikes Back the second Star Wars movie comes out a couple years later and that's usually experienced by that generation as like the height of that series right um, but then by the time the third one came out, it was like three years after that. And then it's still being targeted at, at kids with, you know, things right. like the Ewoks. But then some of you guys are getting older and are starting exactly. to like be over that. 
Yeah, I think it would sh- like for me. Indeed, I was nine when Star Wars came out. Wow, this is great. This is the best thing ever. Yeah. Um, and then Empire Strikes came out. Uh, Empire Strikes out. Uh, Strikes Back came out when I was twelve, or just turning twelve, and which was you know it 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 had grown with me because it was a little darker, a little more sophisticated, just slightly more adult than Star Wars. But then by the time Return of the Jedi came out, I was turning fifteen, and I'm like, I don't want to watch some movie with teddy bears. It's you know. And and if you if you were watching TV at the time, you know the movie was being promoted with like you know the the sets of McDonald or Burger King plastic cups with the Ewoks on them and all. You know it was just this big commercial thing. Mm-hmm. And by the time you're turning fifteen, you're getting more sort of cynical, and you definitely don't want to be dabbling in kitty stuff and stuff. So yeah, whereas I'm sure kids just um, you know the Uranus uh, in Libra kids were the ones who were, you know, Return of the Jedi was still a massively successful film and and you would have had the Uranus and, and Libra kids really latching onto that. Kids who were probably just a bit too small to see Star Wars when it first came out. They they might have seen it, you know, later on catching up with it, but uh, not not necessarily in 1977. Yeah. And then we were talking about how then eventually like what was it? It was like a decade, almost two decades later George Lucas does his prequel trilogy of episodes like one, two, and three starting in, in the early 2000s. Yeah. Yeah. Like 90, 99, 99, 2002 and 2005, I think. Right. Yeah. But that how then the earlier generation that had first grown up with star Wars, a lot of them were like super not into that new right. trilogy and just like panned it yeah. very hard. Whereas some like younger people that were just still young at that point, like in like my generation were a little bit more into it than maybe the previous generation was sure yeah yeah, absolutely because um i was turning 31 when phantom menace came out so you know i went to see it out of a sense of uh nostalgia for the for the childhood thing but yeah it it didn't grab me i've, I've softened on it since but yeah it, watch, it, watch your tone <laughs> around me old man no it's i you know um the movie doesn't need me to to like it i'm not trying to like take shots at it you know it's just it it, it very uh, our our point is is well made in that between the two of us and our different generations, um, we we're just we got on these trains at different stages in our lives, and therefore we're o- open or closed to where these things sort of transition to uh, in very different ways. You know, um, well, I will defend the prequel trilogy yeah, with my that, dying that's breath. Fine. That's fine. We can we can have a lightsaber fight over it later. Okay. <laughs> Although, ironically, now that I'm getting older. Latest trilogy didn't care for that's it. Right, that's yeah. right. Yeah, yeah. So now I'm getting Whereas to I'm experience no, yeah, like some of that. Yeah, yeah. I'm now raising an 11 year old, and I'm gonna, you know, probably show her those movies, and she'll probably love them. Okay. Well, yeah, yeah. You'll have to let me know how they, yeah. how she thinks of it. Yeah. yeah. Um, all right. So before this turns into like a two-hour Star Wars podcast, <laughs> let's reel it in a little bit. Yeah, we've made yeah, our yeah. point. We made our point. That's that's one. You know, I mean, it is this sort of this one defining cultural artifact, but there's all kinds of things. You know. Mm-hmm. Um, Definitely, if if you think about the baby boomers uh, um, just starting to get allowance money and paper route money and all that stuff uh, in the mid fifties, and you know they're getting transistor radios or or little record players, so they can listen to their own music. Their parents' generation were were really listening to the same music their parents were. You know, there would be someone on the radio, and they would all sort of listen to the same stuff. But when you got to the baby boomers, you had this thing where like young people have their own movies, their own music, their own marketplace, essentially. Yeah. Uh, not to commodify art, but that's, you know, that, that, that's where these things merge. Yeah. Um, 
and and that's how these things became the phenomenon that they were. Um, phenomena but, that they were. Phenomenae. Phenomenae. Uh, no, no, no. Uh, <laughs> but then you know the the thing about that also is that they experience. You have the generational thing of everybody having that collective same placement, let's say, in a certain sign of the zodiac, or a certain alignment of outer planets, like roughly in the time frame that somebody was born, which we'll go into more in a bit, but. Also, sometimes they experience later outer planet alignments, you know, at the same time, and that hits them all generationally in a similar way. Yeah. Because I'm thinking of how with the baby boomer generation, that's also the generation that comes of age around the time of like the late 1960s and like the, the hippie movement and the counterculture mm -hmm. and stuff. And that's around the time that we're having like the Uranus Pluto conjunction in yeah. Virgo that I sometimes associate with that. Absolutely. They're all kind of experiencing that generationally around that time frame. Right. And then in turn, my generation, X generation, we were in our late teens, early 20s when the Uranus Neptune conjunction in Capricorn happened uh, in the early 1990s, which in its own way was very, was really connected to the changes in culture that we were going through at the time. I mean, it, it was weird because uh, because of the baby boomers outnumbered Gen, Gen X demographically, you know, by by a large number. Through the '80s, even though we the Generation X generation was was young, it, the the culture was still sort of very much controlled by baby boomers. And it was only when you got to the '90s and the Uranus Neptune conjunction that um, the, the 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 What's the word I'm looking for? The 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 sort of the the handles, the, the culture, the zeitgeist mm -hmm. was was wrenched from boomer hands for good. Um, you know, they they no longer were sort of controlling MTV or you know the the movie industry in in the way that they had been up until that point. Yeah, because one of the things I think about actually of that period in the early 1990s is sudden. Sometimes it can be like sudden cultural shifts that people didn't see coming by individuals that rise up in a generation or somehow become representative in some way sometimes reluctantly of an entire generation for better or worse but i think of the shift of like nirvana's album nevermind coming out in yeah. 1991 yeah. and you know ironically kurt cobain having virgo rising so having that uranus pluto conjunction um, in his rising sign and conjunct his ascendant essentially. Right. Um, but there again, there was also technology contributed to uh, Nirvana's ascension because it was right at that moment in 1991 that um, SoundScan was introduced into uh, record stores for, for charts, you know, pop charts and record charts for what were, what was the best, you know, the top 10 and all that kind of thing. Up until 1991, those charts were just determined mostly by um, record store managers who were generally baby boomers, even at that point. Um, and so they, they had a bias towards the music that they liked. They would say, oh yeah, you know, Phil Collins is selling a lot of records. Although, and he might've been selling some, but he wasn't selling as many as they were thinking. Uh, and meanwhile, like heavy metal was selling a lot of records, but wasn't, get, wasn't being charted because boomers weren't into that music. It was sort of a Gen X music. But then boom, you get sound scan. Suddenly records, when records are sold, it's being computerized. I mean, this is like to anyone younger than Generation X, you can't even imagine this, that, that, that you know, um, tracking sales of an item wasn't done electronically. But it, that only started with 1991 uh, in the music industry. And suddenly they found out, oh, kids are listening to a lot of what was called alternative music. Although, you know, from this point forward, there was nothing alternative about it. It totally became the mainstream over, overnight. 
Um, and this is also, they found out um, boomers were listening to a lot more country and Western than they thought. So suddenly people like Garth Brooks were making the charts, even though, uh, you know, he'd probably been selling a lot of albums before that. Um, it was only with SoundScan that they really could uh, track these sales more accurately. Um, so yeah, um, that's, that's part of what made the Uranus-Neptune conjunction of the early 90s what it was culturally. Um, and that's, that's part of how uh, control over the zeitgeist was wrenched from boomer hands at that point. Right. Um, but is that, you know, going back to Kurt Cobain as an individual who somehow embodied the, yeah. You know, can that happen sometimes where you have individuals that have certain generational placements prominent in their chart in some way stand out amongst their peers for some reason? Yeah, um, I, I think so. Um, definitely, you know, I mean, if, if you look at the baby boomers, you know, you're, you're going to be looking at people like the Beatles, um, who, who had a massive cultural impact in the 60s. Um, they, you know, we, we have sort of loose birth time, so it's hard to say, you know, McCartney might have had a Virgo rising with Neptune right on the ascendant, and that Pluto-Uranus conjunction may have been crossing over his ascendant, but we're not 100% sure that that's his birth time. But um, certainly, they were still born at, at points in 1940 and 1942 where, um, yeah, their charts were sort of channeled pretty strongly with, uh, with outer planet transits. Sure. Um, all right. So that's one angle on this. And so we've been talking about like Pluto generations. So really yeah. quickly, what are some of the other Pluto generations of the 20th century? We've talked about, you said cancer was- The First World War, 1914. Yeah. So, so 1914, roughly yeah. to 1939. Exactly. Yeah. So, so Pluto and Cancer generation, that's um, 1914 to 1939. Pluto and Leo. 1939 to 1956. Okay. And Pluto and Virgo? Uh, 1956, right up until 1971. Okay. And then that goes into Pluto and Libra. Yeah. Which goes right up until, I believe, 1984, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, it goes back and forth. Yeah. 83, 84. 83, 84, right. And then Pluto and Scorpio is 83. Right up to 95. Okay. Then we have Pluto and Sag starts. Yeah. And that ends 2008. 2008, yeah. And that one was interesting because that was right around the time of that great recession. Yeah, yeah. The housing, the house market bubble crash, yeah. Right. And that caused like a worldwide financial destabilization. And that's the one we're coming to the end of right now because we're getting towards the end of Pluto and Capricorn and we'll have Pluto ingressing into Aquarius as we were talking about in the last episode yeah. um, in 2025. Right. So besides Pluto, there's also Neptune moving through the signs at different, yeah. different rates, some slightly faster. Slightly faster. Um, in the 20th century, um, Neptune was in Leo for much of the for the that first world war period while pluto was in cancer mm -hmm. the pluto and neptune had made their last conjunction in gemini in the 1890s in 1892-93 so if you think of the two of them being conjunct at about 8 degrees gemini in 1892 and of course neptune's a little faster than pluto so neptune reached cancer earlier like in the first decade of the 20th century and then pluto would follow there in 1914 by which point neptune was moving into leo uh, Neptune moved into Virgo, I think, around 1927, 28, uh, which coincided with um, 
talkies, the movies, going from silent to sound film, which which always struck me as very interesting. Neptune going into Virgo, suddenly you had this merging of of cinema and sound. Um, and then Neptune went into Libra, I believe, in 1942, between 42 and 43, in the midst of the war, um, and uh, made its ingress into Scorpio in 1956, the same year that Pluto went into Virgo. Uh, it stayed in, in uh, Scorpio right up until 1970, just a few days after New Year's Day, 1970. So, it's, um, so everyone born in the 1960s, for instance, has Neptune in Scorpio, as well as the last four years of the 50s. Uh, Neptune from there was in Sagittarius right up until 1983. Um, I slotted in 84, but just the very, very, right. very it, tail end. It ingress, I, I, like I think there'd been an ingress before you. Are you born between the two? Yeah. 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 I think the first ingress was in early 84. Okay. I think of it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, or late 83. Sorry if I'm not specific on that. Um, but close enough. Um, and then it moved into Aquarius in 1996. And uh, then into Pisces. Gosh, when did it move into Pisces? <laughs> it's been uh, there forever. 2011. It was, it was the Fukushima um, in March of uh, uh, 2011 that Neptune went into. I remember I, I associate the Fukushima tragedy with Neptune making its ingress to Pisces. I remember, I, for some reason, I thought it was like also around a Uranus ingress into Aries or something like that as yeah. well. Yeah. yeah, which was 2010, 2011. Yeah. Right. Yeah. All right, so it's like that means on the one hand, just again building up the basic premise here that we have, you know, not just one outer planet that's going through signs that's representing is there for an entire generation, which is like Pluto going through the signs very slowly, but we also have Neptune going through the signs. We have two different planets or two different variables in different signs or sometimes in the same sign of the zodiac during different generations. And um, yeah, and that can just keep getting added up as you add other variables like other outer planets like Uranus. Yeah. Which also, you know, spends about seven years in each sign. That's right. And um, um, Uranus being a little faster than the other two planets um, makes aspects to them more often than they make aspects to each other, but Neptune and Pluto, that is. Yeah, that was going to be the next point, which is that it's not just having planets like different variables in isolation and different signs but then also another variable with the generations is that those planets will sometimes form alignments or aspects with each other which in and of itself generates independent meanings yeah yeah for instance i mentioned a few minutes ago neptune and pluto made a conjunction in gemini in the 1890s um, but that's a 500 year cycle neptune and pluto had not been conjunct prior to that since the very late 1300s like I think 1398 or something. So it's almost 500 years uh, between Neptune-Pluto conjunctions. So those really, you know, I mean, think of everything that changed between the late 1300s until the end of the 19th century. It's still quite a bit of, uh, you know, social and technological growth right there, even, even before we get into the age of airplanes and radios and stuff. Right. Um, uh, but, uh, and Uranus-Neptune, um, you know, we, we, we mentioned that we mentioned Uranus Pluto in the 60s, Uranus Neptune in the 90s. Those are a little more common. I mean, they still take quite a bit of time. Uranus Pluto is well over 100 years, I think like 140, 160 years between conjunctions. Yeah. Um, so they're there, but still, you know, they can happen uh, almost, almost every decade, uh, almost every century. 
And Uranus-Neptune conjunctions are about every 170 years, I want to say. Something like that, yeah. Yeah, because that's one I had tracked because it shows up um, in terms of the long-term history of astrology. I noticed every time there's a Uranus-Neptune conjunction, there tends to be a revival of older forms of astrology. That's right, yeah, I remember you doing that. Merged with whatever the contemporary form of astrology is at the time to create a new synthesis about every 170 years. Yeah, so um, yeah, that's... um, you know the, these planets do interact, but it takes quite a while for them to do so. Um, but nonetheless, they're, the, the aspects they do make to each other, you know, in the same way that we've been describing, say, the 1960s or the 1990s, um, there are even things like uh, you know Uranus and Pluto had this really strong opposition in um, when Pluto was in Aquarius, Uranus was in Leo, and these, these were the years of the French Revolution, for instance. You know. Um, through through conjunction and opposition, those Uranus Pluto uh, uh, interactions, um, you know, bring about these sort of these these periods where there is a lot of sort of social upheaval and things change very quickly. Right. Um, yeah. So that's I mean, because that's another uh, thing as well in terms of mundane astrology is just the discovery of some of these outer planets and sometimes major world type um, shifts in. Either technology or uh, consciousness or um, just social focus happen around the time of the discovery of new planets that are thought to be indicative of what that planet means in general. Yeah, yeah. Um, now, getting back to the modern age in the twentieth century, the 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 post war generations that is the the baby boomers, the Gen X, the the millennials, the the Gen Z Zoomers. Hold on, what are before we do that? Like, Uh-oh. what are some of the things that happened around the discovery of the three outer planets oh okay um sorry um uh when uranus was discovered in 1781 uh that was just that was the very end of the american revolutionary war and it was leading into what would become the french revolution um one of the things that came about was the discovery of uranus the first planet to be discovered that isn't visible to the naked eye uh william herschel discovered it using a telescope he designed that was sophisticated enough that it could see that that far um, there's also a flight, um, uh, hot air balloons, the Montgolfier brothers in France, uh, who were starting to launch balloons into the sky. There had been hot air balloons that had been launched indoors earlier in the 18th century, but it's, it's in the 1780s that, uh, the Montgolfier brothers are starting to launch hot, uh, hot air balloons into the sky. And for the first time, people are really, you know, flying. Uh, and in fact, a hot air balloon was used during one of the, uh, the, the battles that that France had with the I guess either you know German states or Austria okay. in, in the Revolutionary War, so you even you know right away had it introduced into a military context. That would have been doing hard, reconnaissance hard to avoid. Oh, okay, seventeen ninety four. They weren't like flying a balloon into a battle or something. No, 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 no. Okay. They were flying it above for reconnaissance. Yeah, seventeen ninety four. This was yeah. So um, okay. you know um, right away you have that kind of. Uh, people being able to do things that they've never been able to do before, right? Through like advancements in technology, or yeah, in the yeah. case of even the discovery of Uranus, using like a, a telescope that's sufficiently advanced, a piece of technology in order to magnify essentially the human senses and allow them to to do or to perceive something that they couldn't perceive otherwise. That's right. Yeah. Uh, Neptune was discovered in um, the eighteen forties. Eighteen forty-six. I mean, it's kind of was the hold on. Was the revolutionary? Oh, is that overemphasized at all, or or was the revolutionary nature of the American Revolution or the French Revolution as 
unique as it's sometimes like portrayed in popular culture as let's say you know revolutionary or as something that was like uns unsettling the established order yeah or yeah no the french like the that. french revolution undid things that had been in effect for hundreds of years mm -hmm. um that you know overthrowing the the the, the french monarchy um I've, i mean it would be sort of reintroduced by napoleon but in a very different way it wasn't the sort of long-standing hereditary thing mm -hmm. Uh, or you know, uh, automatically sanctioned by the church. Although you know, Napoleon sort of forced the church to sanction him. Um, but yeah, I mean, you know, you had for the first time um, with the French Revolution, you know, the the people, so to speak, taking part. You know, in um, you, you had a, a democratic movement that was a lot more democratic than what the Americans had, had done. Although they were very much influenced by the Americans, by the spirit of the American Revolution. Yeah, so it's similar to Uranus in that when Uranus transits happen in like a person's life, there can be this this disruptive quality or this unexpected sort of shakeup that comes in, sometimes out of out of nowhere. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. All right. Um, so you're saying when was Neptune discovered? Neptune was the 1840s. Um, so the the first you know what are called daguerreotypes, the early models for photography. I think those came about in 1839, but they're sort of that that technology is evolving over the 1840s. Um, advertising, um, the discovery of gold in California. Think about uh, California. I think of as a very Neptunian place. Uh, the United States had only just won it in the war with Mexico in 1846, and they're literally uh, signing the, the 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 treaty ending the war when Neptune's discovered. Um, and uh, and gold just right after in 1848 is found in California, which triggers this rush. All the the, the sort of the American mythos of going west, of of define, you know, sort of re creating your life out of uh, re re you know restarting your life, if you will. This uh, idea of going west and and defining yourself, finding your fortune. Um. That's a Neptunian thing, you know. If you think, and and the fact that it's California, what what will eventually be Hollywood, right? Which is of, really ironic. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah. Um, Hollywood with movies, because then the later versions of that is like you know moving to Hollywood to like become an acting a star, get into exactly. fil films or something. Yeah, like yeah. That. that that thing just keeps going on and on. But it, it starts with the gold rush, no question about it. Hmm. Um. So yeah, and and also. Um, in in the 1840s, you're also having a lot of revolutions in Europe. Um, they've been contained since you know after Napoleon was crushed. Um, revolutionary fervor was really repressed. There had been uprisings in Greece and Mexico, the Latin American states, but um, largely, like you know, things were sort of really policed and and kept down. And that's what happened in the 1840s. Um, all these different countries, many German principalities, France. Um, Holland, uh, a lot of countries um, had these, you know, Hungary um, had these, Poland had these big uprisings, uh, Ireland, you know, um, and they were repressed, but they had a longstanding sort of cultural um, uh, impact. You know, Karl Marx, for instance, wouldn't have been writing all the stuff he's writing if he hadn't seen the 1848 uprisings. Uh, Wagner, you know, wouldn't have been uh, writing the nationalist music he was writing if it hadn't been for those uprisings, probably. So all this different stuff. Dostoevsky, I mean, I could go on and on, you know, so it really spreads out there. Um, and then Pluto's discovered in 18, uh, 1930. 
just a couple of months after the stock market crashes in October of 29. And uh, yeah, and the ascension of Nazi Germany and, and leading to the war years. Right. And one thing I was looking at with that a lot was like the rise of, of fascism in, in Europe, but also in how that influenced other fascist uh, movements around the world over the course of the next like decades or decade or so, basically. Sure. Argentina. Um, Iran goes through a real profound transformation during that time. Yeah, absolutely. Um, one of the things we were talking about yesterday, just in private, was you know Mike Brown, who I think discovered Sedna or, mm. or one of the recent uh, minor planet bodies in the outer edges of the solar system, has a team that's like actively looking for another large planet planet-sized body out there in the outer reaches of our solar system right now, and thinks there is one based on gravitational like discrepancies on some of the other planets um so it would be really interesting and one of the things we were like theorizing was what could be discovered you know if uh, there was a new planet that was discovered what are some things that are kind of like on the edges of sort of our human awareness or consciousness right now that could sort of be confirmed or emerged that might coincide with that in the next i don't know decade or two or however long it takes and just some of the possibilities of that, right? And we it's were an talking, interesting thought experiment. Yeah, yeah, we were we were throwing things out there like AI, yeah, uh, the like, like deep fake technologies. Yeah, I mean the emergence of AI. If AI was like created, that would be a huge turning point in human history, in one way or another. So yeah. that that's a really you know pro if that's possible. Because that's the thing about some of the, the discovery of some of the previous things. It's not that those things didn't exist entirely sometimes up to that point, but um, really their full emergence and influence on on human history became much more prominent, certainly by the time those planets were discovered. And then in the wake of that, yeah, like I don't know, like revolutions and some of the revolutionary impulses during the American or French Revolution, for example. Yeah, I mean that spread all over the world. There's, there's no question about it. I mean, um, when the when the Russian Revolution happened, the Bolshevik Revolution, um, they were they were modeling their actions after the French revolutionaries. You know, they were really trying to recreate the French Revolution, for instance. Yeah, and then the Chinese Revolution was very much they were trying to recreate the Russian Revolution. You know, so I mean these these aren't uh, abstract influences. They're very direct. They're very conscious. Yeah, but even things like like electricity sometimes they sometimes get associated with planets like Uranus. Sure, yeah. It's not that that it didn't exist or that like you know lightning, for example, didn't exist for all of human history up to that point. But certainly the ability to harness electricity and like identify it, and then the way in which it's uh, changed and really um, supercharged sort of like human progress or scientific progress and culture since it's you know since it's been harnessed yeah yeah which also started yeah at the end of the 18th century after uranus had been discovered it was start it was on its way by the time uranus was discovered but you really start to see it um yeah managed from that point on so i wonder that's just an interesting like thought experiment to think about things like that that are maybe like things that we're aware of that are like trending in that direction but that you know in the next decade or two or however long it takes um could reach some sort of culmination or critical turning point where something that was a possibility becomes a reality um so so ai is like one of those things and just the open question of whether you can create an artificial consciousness of some sort however you define that 
Um, another one that we were talking about was, you know, that would be a huge turning point in human history and would be interesting if that coincided with the discovery of a new planet was just um, if any form of biological or alien life was found outside of Earth, basically. Yeah. Even in just yeah. like microbial form, like if they find, you know, microbes, organic microbes on Europa, like one of the moons of Jupiter or something. That would be a huge discovery and turning point in human history that life isn't unique to to Earth. Yeah, yeah, that, that's and and then who knows, you know, how are these new generations of people going to be different? You know, um, like these these definitions will keep changing. You know, Zoomers don't just sort of go on indefinitely. Um, so yeah, as new planets are discovered, you get these these new generations of people. Um, you know, who in turn will be defined by the age they were born in. Right. Yeah. So, all right. So taking it back to back to where we started and back to before I interrupted you, that digression, talking about the discovery of the outer planets, were you going into more um, planetary alignments? Because one of the things that happens is that that you were focused on, and, and we definitely want to talk about today, is that with generations, it's not just that they have placements, um, but different generations will experience um, the sequence of certain transits in different orders, if you zoom out of not just our localized like past century, but if you even go back further and see the sequence in which certain um, transits are experienced by different generations of people is much different. Yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, where to begin with that? I was, uh, one thing I was going to point out about the the uh, post-war generations, the the boomers onward, everyone alive today, virtually everyone alive, except maybe, you know, people in their 90s. Um, everyone alive today, uh, born from, say, the mid-1940s onward. So, okay, maybe not Joe Biden and not, maybe not the super old, but everyone younger than Joe Biden, including, uh, uh, you know, um, the last few presidents um, prior to Biden. Um, all of these people, and you and myself, and people younger than us, we all have Neptune-Pluto sextiles within a few degrees. Um, because of Pluto, Pluto has this very um, unusual orbit, asymmetrical orbit, where it spends a really long period of time in Taurus, multiple decades in Taurus, but a relatively short period of time in Scorpio, I think not more than 12 years or so. Um, so it's a really uneven orbit. Um, everyone in the in the 19th century, the 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 19, you know the 1800s began with Pluto in Pisces and ended with Pluto in Gemini. So Pluto barely transited a square within that whole century. Whereas the 1900s began with Pluto in Gemini and ended with it in Sagittarius, which is like half of the zodiac as opposed to merely a quarter of it. Uh, and that's because of the the inordinate amount of time that Pluto spends in Aries and, and Taurus, so particularly Taurus, the longest. Do you know how long it spends in Taurus? Oh, boy. I know. I think Scorpio is the shortest, isn't it? Scorpio is the shortest. Taurus is the longest. I used to know this off the top of my head, but I mean, it's it's multiple decades. It, it's it's at least thirty years. And it spends such a short time in Scorpio because Scorpio is the best. I think you agree, right? 
Um, no, it's like it wants uh, to get the hell out of there. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> right. like I want to. I want to be here as little time as possible. Yeah, yeah. Um, like a bad neighborhood is just like dri driving <laughs> yeah, through exactly, really fast. Yeah. Roll up the windows, dear. Right. Um, yeah, um, but um, that's that's what makes it different. So, as a consequence of that, um, you know, w w we mentioned um, um, Pluto made its ingress to Leo in 1939. And then Neptune made its ingress to Libra around 42, 43. So that within a few years, because again, Neptune's a little faster than Pluto, by 1945, they're within just a couple of degrees uh, of sextile, like within two, three de degrees of each other in sextile. And by 1950, they're making the first of many, many exact sextile aspects that have continued on and off since 1950 and will continue up until the 2030s, the late 2030s. Which is why I say everyone younger than Joe Biden alive today has a Neptune-Pluto sextile within just a few degrees. So that's really unique, and it's just because of the way that the their orbits happen to coincide at this point in history, right? That like a century's worth of people have Pluto sextile. This one aspect, yeah. But I mean, think of it. I mean, all of us born in this post-war age, you know, we are very different. You know, um, I mean, it's it's hard to sort of group boomers and Gen X and, and millennials together, but there is something about us as a larger group that's very different from every other uh, generation of human beings that have existed anywhere prior to now. We have very different lives and very different sort of global outlooks and, and what have you. And obviously access to very different technology, a lot more. Right. Um, so everybody has that shared aspect and then it also sets it up because everybody's born then with uh, Pluto square Neptune that at some point after they're born just with their transits where their birth chart stays fixed but then the planets keep moving forward through the signs of the zodiac and zodiacal order eventually for all of those people Pluto will then um, catch up to and conjoin the spot where their natal Neptune that's was right. when they were born that's right that's another thing that uh, defines us as 20th century people as opposed to people born in the 19th century, because remember, Neptune and Pluto made a conjunction in the 1890s. So anyone born before that, they would have their transiting Neptune eventually make a, tran a conjunction to their natal Pluto. But everyone born afterwards, it's the Pluto that catches up with the natal Neptune. Um, and particularly for the, the boomers and onward, we all get this transit when we're somewhere in our 20s. Um, I think my parents had only happened for them. They were born in 46. They got it when they were about 27. I got it because, you know, I went through the Pluto and Scorpio age when Pluto's going a little faster. And so I had it, I think, at 23, 24. I'm not sure what age you would have had it at. Um, when, I mean, I was, my Neptune's at 29 Sagittarius. So as Pluto is changing signs around 2007, so you were about 2003, 23, 24. Yeah. yeah. I think I know somebody that's like 25 right now and is having it, if I'm not mistaken. Okay. Yeah. 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 It should start to take a little longer now as we get further and further away from Pluto and Scorpio. Hmm. Okay. So that's another hugely important piece that's often overlooked of generational astrology is the sequence in which different um, groups or generations of people will experience like what part of their life they'll experience certain transits in yeah and the fact that everybody in this century for the most part is experiencing that in their mid-20s basically mm -hmm. is that correct yeah yeah so 
but whereas there will be in the future, like let, let's move that forward a bit. There's going to be at some point where people are experiencing that transit, like in their thirties or in their forties. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And eventually it's going to be a square. Um, the next Neptune Pluto square is in the 2060s. So by the time this century ends, yeah, you'll, you know, you're not going to have people with this, the natal sextile anymore. In fact, yeah, we have another sort of 10, 15 years of people being born with that sextile, but eventually they phase out. And by the 2060s, Neptune and Pluto reach a square. Mm, okay. Yeah. So it changes um, not just their natal signature and alignment of different planets generationally, but also just uh, the time frame in which they experience certain transits. And then at some point, they'll become far enough that like um, individuals are not going to experience transiting Pluto conjoining natal Neptune at all in, in their lifetime. Yeah, uh, exactly. And um, and they're going to be very, you know, like today we we talk about these generations. I mean, one of the reasons we're doing this episode is because we're very conscious of these generational divides in our culture, right? I mean, we talk all the time, whether it's in politics, economics, or, or culture, we talk about what, you know, Gen X this, millennial that, Zoomer this, Boomer that. Um, and yet, um, all of us are a lot more like each other than the people who are likely to come around in the 2060s. They will be more different from their parents than Zoomers or millennials are from theirs, which is, you know, <laughs> we, we think there's a generation gap now. Um, it'll get very interesting. Do you know, we've talked a lot about the boomer generation, but when, and we talked a little bit about Generation X, but do you know, or do you remember the timeframes of like, Generation X, Millennial, Zoomer. Yeah, I mean, more or less. It's it these these things are sort of fluid, in my opinion. Um, you usually see Gen, um, Gen X starting in six, 1964, although you know, I I would argue it, it's a little earlier than that. You know, but again, the, this is uh, you know, this is the thing. These terms were really defined uh, by demographics in terms of the the number of children being born. Because Gen X is when that number sort of slows down. And then when we get to millennials, it's when it starts to climb again. But also, this is it's fairly uniquely American. Because if you think about the end of the Second World War, it's not like everyone all of, over the world is having a lot of babies. It's Americans who are having a lot of babies. But then that in turn, because of America's place in the, in the zeitgeist, in pop culture, you know, the rock and roll records, for instance, even kids in Britain or Germany or Denmark, who are not living through a baby boom. They're, they don't have the same numbers in terms of young people that America does proportionately. But they're influenced by the culture. They're doing all the things that, you know, they're listening to the same records or a lot of the same records and watching a lot of the same movies that their American counterparts are because that's where the, a lot of the culture's emerging from. Um, so it, it gets kind of funny that way. I mean, some of it has to do with... Uh, uh, some of it is sort of very strongly defined by American demographics, but then in terms, there's there's a sort of culture aftershock that that spreads this phenomenon and and defines these generations beyond American borders. Um, but yeah, you have the boomers up until 1964, where you have this really large demographic, and then the demographic shrinks, and you have the Gen X people, which is like 64 to about 1979 1980 I tend to think of millennials starting in 1980 I could be you know I think people would quibble over that but that's more or less where where I think of it beginning and then I think of that lasting 20 years up until 
the new century, and that's when we get Zoomers. Hmm. Like 2000s forward? Yeah. Okay. All right. Um, those are some recent ones. And then, yeah, we're, we're about to have that Pluto shift just astrologically, which could be a generational divide there in the end of um, like the past decade, decade and a half, basically, of Pluto going through Capricorn since 2008. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, all right. So I know in terms of the sequence of experiencing certain transits at certain parts of the life, because there's certain transits. That's what's so interesting about this and so unique. And just to not to belabor the point, but just to contrast it again, there's individual inner planet transits that we all experience really consistently, especially for the visible planets at the same times in our life, you know, just sort of in isolation, like, you know, the sun returns back to where it was in our birth chart every year. Mm -hmm. Um the uh, Jupiter returns to where it was in our birth chart every 12 years. Mm -hmm. Saturn eventually returns, um, you know, every between 27 and 30 years. And we have our Saturn return mm -hmm. around age 28 or so. Every eight years, our solar return chart has Venus in very close to the natal position, sort of repeating the same Venus phase every eight years. Mm -hmm. So that's another one that, that really sort of repeats itself right. over the course of a human life. So there's a tremendous amount of just like repetition of similar repetitions that we all experience on an individual level that are the same. But then there's something weird about some of these generational transits about how they can shift and a century worth of people can experience certain transits in one part of their life and another century can experience it in another part of the life. Like some of the, you were talking before about some of the 1800s and, and things they would experience. Could you mention some of those transits that might have been different for somebody living in like the 17 or 1800s versus the 20th century? Yeah. Um, I mean, there's those obvious ones with the outer planets that I mentioned already, like how Pluto was only in Pisces, Aries, Taurus, and Gemini throughout the you know 1800s. Um, but then there's things like the synodic cycle of Venus, which takes 251 years to go all the way around the zodiac. So it'll spend about 120 years in one sign before gradually wandering into the previous zodiacal sign explain explain that why that is so that it's because venus every eight years venus will go retrograde in the same spot in the zodiac yeah. but it'll subtract two degrees yeah yeah it'll be every eight years minus two days it's 2920 days which is like eight years minus two days and it's because of that that shift in in two days and two zodiacal degrees that the returns happen just two degrees earlier with every successive return so that in 120 years, uh, the retrogrades will have, um, the returns will have shifted an entire zodiac sign. So if, if, they use, if the return used to happen in Scorpio, within 120 years, it'll start happening in Libra. Give an example of like the two degree difference though, like, like a recent one. For example, we have a Venus retrograde coming up in Leo next year, right? Right. Do you know what degree it's stationing? Uh, I forget. I think... 28. I think this is the first one that's properly in Leo because back in 2015, the retrograde station, I think, happened oh, right. at Zero Virgo. Virgo. All right, let's pick a different one because that's not a good example. Well, actually, right? it is a good example it? because okay. it, it illustrates the shift. Hmm. Throughout the 20th century, that Venus retrograde used to always happen in Virgo. You know, um, well, let's take it back incrementally. So it's going to station next year, what, summertime, June, July? July, yeah. July of 2023. That's right. It's going to 
Venus will slow down in the middle of the sky and it will stop and do a U-turn and change directions and it'll station retrograde at 28 degrees of Leo. And eight years earlier, uh, in 2015, in July of 2015, around the same time frame, um, it also did the same thing where it slowed down in the middle of the sky. It did a U-turn, yeah. but it stationed at like zero degrees of Virgo. Then. That's right. So, and then eight years prior to that in 2007, it would have been at about two degrees of Virgo. And eight years prior to that in 1999, at about four degrees of Virgo. Right. And then if you keep going back in time every eight years, 99 to 91 to 83 to 75 to 67 to 59 to 51 to 43 eventually like you'll see it actually it went from libra into virgo you mm -hmm. know um if you go back far enough and so okay. on and so forth i think back in like 1911 or something like that so there's like a repetition in that it's doing that every eight years like really close to where it did eight years earlier in the yeah. sky but it's just off by two degrees and therefore there's a drift and you said it takes how long for that drift 120 years to go through an years. entire sign yeah okay so in other words um because it goes backwards like this um indeed it, you know people born in the 1800s in the 19th century um there are five venus retrogrades that have happen every eight years and in the 19th century those you know venus would go retrograde in signs like uh pisces libra sagittarius leo but a different leo than now like early leo going into cancer um and um which one have i left out here i think i said them all libra sagittarius pisces so but the, the point, just catching up but the point, point is just that it would only go retrograde basically in five signs in those five signs over the course of that most of that century the entire century so yeah. it, that means it, it's leaving out and would not go retrograde in a number of other signs in a number of other signs right seven other signs and then in the 20th century the one that was in pisces had wandered to aquarius the one that was in sagittarius had wandered to scorpio the one that was in Libra wandered to Virgo, the one that's now in Leo. Um, there's one that's in Gemini these days. In the 20th century, it was in Cancer. And then in the 1800s, it was in Leo. So, you know, just it all sort of winds around and it takes 251 years for it to cover all the degrees of the zodiac. Um, so yeah, like anyone born in the 1800s, they would have experienced these transits. You know, let, let's say you're... Um, you're a Taurus sun living your life over the course of the 1800s, you're going to have Venus go retrograde in your sun sign every eight years. Whereas if you're an Aries in the 20th century, you have Venus going retrograde in your sun sign every eight years. Okay. Versus there's going to be some signs where if you have that sun sign, give me one of them where you're not going to experience a Venus retrograde over your sun sign at all. Um, like ever Cur currently, currently, um, there are, yeah, there are no, um, there are no Sagittarians who are going to have Venus go retrograde in their sun sign right now. Okay. So never experience a Venus retrograde in their lifetime, essentially. That's right. Yeah. In their sun sign. They won't. Yeah. So that's really significant then because that's that becomes another consideration or another form of generational astrology of like what transits certain people will experience or won't experience based on their natal placements and just based on the the arrangement of the sky during their lifetime during the course of let's say a normal lifetime of i don't know 70 to 80 years yeah so yeah that that does that does change things that does that's another thing that sort of indicates these different ages that uh, successive generations live in you know and and um 
while there might be like a huge group of us that's almost a century old that all have Neptune Pluto sextiles, um, there's some of us born in one century who who experience Venus retrogrades in certain signs, and then in the following century, it's a whole different set of signs that the Venus retrogrades occur in. Right. Um, can we dwell on retrogrades for a moment and why that's maybe important or what that means? Because one of the things I was thinking about with retrogrades recently is that it's like um, holding the same note or, or repeating yeah. the same note you know, three times because anytime there's a retrograde, um, if it's near a natal planet, that means it's going to, let's say, pass over that planet once, then it's going to station retrograde and will like like backing up a yeah. car, like back over it and hit it a second time and it'll go forward again and it'll hit it one more time. Yeah. So it's like if it was music, it was like hitting the same note three times rather than just hitting it once. Yeah. Or or holding the same note over several bars of music even. Mm. Or, you know, depends on how you like to look at it. I mean, that is the 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 single most defining factor of a, you know, or outcome of a planet going retrograde is the planet is spending more time in a given sign, in a given area of the zodiac, than it spends in the rest of the zodiac. And so you have this sort of extended uh, period of time where the planet's you know, significations are playing out in the, over the course of the lives of various individuals. Yeah, I was thinking about that recently for a few reasons, but one of them like with sect, sometimes pe when people learn the concept of sect like the night chart people get depressed about you know that saturn transits that they get saturn is the most difficult planet whereas people with day charts mars is the most difficult planet but saturn because it moves so much slower will spend like three years going through the same sector of your chart whereas mars usually will pass through in like a month or two yeah except mars does have retrogrades which are and when it does they're really long exactly so, so it the, so the it's sort of disproportionate yeah it'll, uh, it'll spend like six or seven six, months in the same in sign. one sign exactly right. exactly and if that's bad news for you then it's it's it can be just as um insufferable as as a given saturn transit through a given house yeah or a nocturnal chart and, and because venus goes retrogrades you can have a extended like long positive like uh, retrograde transit if you have a night chart of, of venus for example yeah oh absolutely absolutely um venus retrograde in its own does not signify misery or joy it, you know it, it can produce either depending on the context of the given horoscope involved right um and the other thing though that balances out the sect thing it's unrelated to our discussion but i was just thinking about how one of the issues I've noticed as a day chart person where sometimes like I'm not looking forward to those Mars transits is they happen more frequently and that becomes one of the downsides. Whereas like a Saturn transit, you have to deal with it. Maybe some stuff happens during and it takes a while, but then eventually it passes on and like you can breathe sigh of relief that you're not going to experience that transit again, that exact transit again for like 30 years. Right. Whereas with Mars, you know that that same transit's going to come back about two and a half years later. Yeah, yeah. Um, although the retrogrades are are uh, a little wackier, um, the Mars cycle is really asymmetrical. So you'll, yeah, you'll I'm get... not talking about with retrogrades, but just oh, okay, in just general, in general, as a general point that um, night chart people should not lament too much because while they get longer, challenging transits, they're less frequent, and the day chart people get you know shorter, you know, challenging transits with Mars. But they happen more frequently, right? Although uh, my, my point with its cycle is, um, 
some of the there, there's also a, a a lucky draw or unlucky draw when it comes to Mars because Mars um, Mars spends a lot more time in Leo than it does in Aquarius by virtue of its cycle, like far more far more time. Uh, Mars retrogrades in Aquarius. Extended periods of Mars being in Aquarius can happen as infrequently as once every forty seven years. You know, we had a retrograde in uh, twenty twenty no twenty eighteen. Mars in a, a, a retrograde in Aquarius, and that was the first one since 1971. Uh, and prior to 1971, there'd been like a very short one uh, at four Aquarius wandering into Capricorn in 1939. So it's really, really infrequent. So in other words, if Mars being in Aquarius, if you're like the wrong day chart and Aquarius is really strong for you, it's only once in a lifetime, most likely, that you're going to have that sort of misery transit, if it happens to be a misery transit for you, of Mars going through Aquarius. Whereas if Mars in Leo is a misery transit for you because of how your chart's set up, well, that's going to come around once every 15 years. You know, you could go through three or four of those easily over the course of a human lifetime. So it is sort of spread out in this really unequal way, depending on, on you know, where Mars is most unfortunate for a given individual. Which is kind of interesting then if you generationally have like, let's say Pluto and Leo and were born in the 1940s. Yeah. You've had multiple Mars transits to your natal Pluto. Exactly. Yeah. Or more recently, like like millennials with like Pluto and Scorpio after that Mars, like squaring that every 15 years. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. So it, it plays out in this very strange way. And yet let's think of, you know, okay, there's no one today born with Pluto and Aquarius, but people born back when Pluto was in Aquarius in the late 17, early 1800s, uh, I guess it was really, it wasn't the early, by the early 1800s, it was in Pisces. But in the late 1700s, people were born with Pluto and Aquarius. Those people probably only once, maybe twice, but probably only once ever had a Mars transit, a retrograde transit through Aquarius through their natal Pluto, as opposed to, like we said, the baby boomers will have that conjunction maybe three or four times mm, okay. over the course of their lifetime. Right. All right. So we're getting into some major stuff about retrogrades and even retrograde cycles, which otherwise seems somewhat erratic or temporary sometimes themselves have some consistency to them that can also lend to certain generational experiences. And Mars, though, it doesn't sometimes it crosses signs. Like it doesn't um it's not as clean as Venus in terms of like staying retrograde in certain signs for an entire century, right? Mm. Yeah. Um, I was thinking it would like just to get back to the the subject of generations. I wanted to talk about Uranus and its transits through the signs because that's a seven year period, and that really does mark out little sort of micro generations. Something that's a little bit a, these are smaller denominations than what we're used to with like say baby boomers, Gen X, so on and so forth. Those demographic designations. Um, Uranus, um, you know, if if you're Talking about sort of, uh, you know, in an archetypal sense, when Uranus is in a given sign, what it seems to do is it seems to pervert the values of that sign. It takes the things that that sign cherishes and values, and it highlights them, but in a very sort of distorted way, in a way that sort of turns that turns those values on their head. And I'll give you a few examples. Um, in 1961-62, Uranus made its ingress into Virgo. Now, Virgo, we think of the sign of being, you know, it's kind of uh, culturally snobbish, right? It likes, you know, if it likes art, it loves the, the, the Dutch masters. If it likes music, it loves the great composers. It's really sort of high-minded in its values for art. So what happens? Uranus goes into Virgo. In the art world, you get Warhol, 
right, literally exhibiting his Campbell soup can paintings right as Uranus enters Virgo. Um, you get Marvel comics. The new literature is this sort of this cheap pulp, <laughs> you know, storytelling for for kids. Um, and the Beatles, the the Beatles start to um, start their recording contract right as Uranus is going into Virgo. So suddenly you have um, the great art of the age being Warhol, the great sort of literature of the age being Marvel comics, the great music of the age being the Beatles. These, this is not what Virgo cherishes. You know, Virgo wants has these very sort of pretentious, high-minded um, um, values with regard to the arts. And what comes out is something that does introduce great artistic value, but it's contrary to the values of the sign. Um, and you see this, you know, you, you, you can apply this to, to any of the signs and Uranus's transit through any of the signs. Um, and, and what it seems to do to um, the value of those signs. So I think there, there is, you know, Uranus was in Leo, for instance, from um, 1955 to uh, 1954 or 55 to 61, 62. Um, and that's, you know, these are the generations, this is the, like the, the, James Dean, Elvis Presley thing. You know, Uranus and Leo was about sort of like these, these heroic figures. But what you get when Uranus is in Leo are these sort of rebellious heroic figures. They're not, you know, great war heroes or anything like that. There's something else about their value as, as lone individuals, if you will. Um, the king of rock and roll, which Elvis was called, which is very Uranus and Leo. Uh, Virgo, I already explained. When Uranus goes into Libra, um, you know, you have, this is when sort of divorce becomes this um, really major phenomenon where you have more couples getting divorced than are staying married, which is starting to happen when Uranus is, is in Libra. Mm. I always think of, I was became really fascinated earlier this year researching um, how the Stonewall riots uh, happened really close to the final ingress, I think, of Uranus into Libra. That's right. Yeah. And that was like the be kind of the beginning or seen often in this, the beginning in the US as the fight for um, rights of LGBTQ community and, and starting to move towards the normalization and, and legalization of that that would eventually culminate decades later. So, yeah, you have this emerging visibility of that community, uh, which was not visible up until that point. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so that's Uranus in Libra. In Libra. You know, and the pop culture, this was, you know, it was while Uranus is in Libra where uh, uh, you had, you know, your, your Sonny and Cher, your Donnie and Marie, your, your, um, uh, uh you know, ABBA, <laughs> you know, these, these married couples who, who sort of come up and they, they, they become stars together and then they sort of blow up and, and divorce. Mm. Uh, later when Uranus was in Scorpio, you saw the same thing with Fleetwood Mac. Um, but I think that's a, you know, even that group started when Uranus was in Libra. So, um, yeah, this, this all kind of um, plays out in the culture and you get these micro generations um, depending on where your Uranus is. Um, I think there's a, you know, a huge difference between, for instance, Gen X, uh, you know, some of us have Uranus and Virgo, some of us have Uranus and Libra, and there's a difference between those two. You can sort of subdivide the Gen X generation by those two Uranus placements. Mm, okay. Yeah. And that just reminded me also of like sometimes we get major worldwide. You know, one of the things we've focused on a lot over the past couple of years since the COVID pandemic and the emergence of that, basically around the time of the last Saturn Pluto conjunction and mm. Capricorn, 
that really was one of the main outer planet signatures that seemed to coincide with that in addition to a few other things and how astrologers had already then looked back at other ones like that like the Saturn Pluto conjunction in Libra in the early 1980s and the AIDS epidemic. That's right. Yeah. So sometimes you have other major cultural things that are affecting generations like that, that are like outer planet alignments that are indicating um, major shifts in the world, sometimes in terms of like health and, uh, you know, pandemics and things like that. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and then in turn, you know, um, you know my my wife's kids they're all um zoomers and and the 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 twins were um in their last year of high school when covid came about they wound up doing their entire school year online mm. you know as did my younger daughter um so you know you have this generation going through something you know who knows how that's going to shape them as adults the fact that they had to do entire years of school uh um online as opposed to in a classroom right and that also is signified by the the sort of the lingering um, power that that's held by the Saturn Pluto conjunction of twenty twenty. Right. Yeah, that makes sense. Or there's a lot of talk about millennials at this point and and getting kind of screwed in terms of coming of age during like the first like housing recession when Pluto went into Capricorn right. in in two thousand eight and just the terrible things that that did to economically and stuff and in mm -hmm. terms of people getting jobs and then the economic situation now then having covid and the pandemic hit uh, now that they're in whatever they're in their 30s late 30s mid, mid late 30s early 40s and stuff and um yeah other you know unstable economic conditions compared to like let's say previous generations and the and the larger sense of stability that maybe the boomers experienced in the second half of the 20th century. Right. Right. Yeah. Very, very sort of different effects. Um, yeah. Um, the boomers, they had their Saturn Pluto conjunction in 1947, you know, in, in Leo. Um, so it's, it's when they were relatively young and then it didn't happen by the time it happened in the eighties, they're, they're entering middle age, you know, so they get to sort of really skip that in terms of they didn't have it happen in their, when they were in their 20s or their 30s mm. the years where you're really sort of establishing yourself that's really interesting yeah um okay and the saturn pluto that it had other like the aids epidemic is one of the that was the last one and it's right. the one that was so obvious because it was right before and that was the emergence of something that was again new at that time um but there had been other saturn pluto conjunctions earlier in the century that had coincided with some major stuff as well or in some instances like in 1918 was like the flu pandemic right 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 when they were they were conjunct in uh in cancer okay yeah uh it was a little bit before the pandemic though you know mm. by the time the pandemic happened saturn had wandered into cancer but it, it took a little while for that pandemic to spread mm -hmm. uh, they called it the spanish flu which was grossly unfair to the spanish it's really should probably be called the kansas flu mm -hmm. the, it probably emerged from a army base there and was spread when the Americans went to war. Okay. Yeah, I remember there was some kind of um retrograde when I was looking at it before and it was that retrograde when they came close back to a conjunction that the second what they call the second deadly wave happened and that right. was when yes. the majority yeah. of the deaths yeah. occurred. Yeah. Uh but I would even, you know, the Saturn Pluto conjunction in Cancer you can even attach it to things like um one thing that typified the Saturn Pluto conjunction of uh, of the First World War 
like 1915-16, with the one in the early 80s, is the use of poison gas and warfare. Uh, because mustard gas was used in the First World War, first by the Germans and then by the Allies. Um, and then it was used again um, in that same period of the, the, where the AIDS epidemic was introduced. Um, the Iran-Iraq war was happening. Mm. And they were using uh, deadly gases in that warfare as well. Okay. Yeah. Which, uh, you know, next to the atom bomb is the <laughs> next most sort of destructive force. And, and one that's completely, you, you can't, like an atom bomb, you just can't fight it, you know. Yeah, of just some of the like horror horrors of the 20th century that yeah. developed like technologically or in terms of advancement or changes in war. Yeah, the one in 1947 coincided with the partition of India, which was you know really brutal in so many ways. Mm -hmm. Okay. Yeah. Um, all right. Where should we go from here in terms of generational astrology, or what haven't we touched on that are important sort of foundational concepts for? A lot of this. I mean, we mentioned the Saturn Pluto, and um, on dimension, give a shout out to you know Richard Harness's book Cosmos and Psyche, which is yeah. one of the best contemporary treatments of that approach to just looking at outer planet alignments in history yeah. and things that have happened uh, up till this point. Yeah, um, he's yeah he's very focused on the outer planets, so um, and largely Uranus Pluto, mm -hmm. and then one of his other another famous 20th century astrologer who was sort of Tarnas's predecessor in some ways in developing some approach like that is Andre Barbeau, right? Yeah. yeah. It was exactly. like a, a French astrologer that did mundane astrology and, and really specialized that and it developed ideas about like a cyclic in, uh, index of, of different outer planet right. cycles coinciding and that ind indicating important turning points like um, the outbreak of of pandemics and things like that, and he was one of the few astrologers then to, to predict it. Yeah, you know. yeah. Even though he actually died just a few years before the right. twenty twenty pandemic, he had pointed to twenty twenty in that time frame as being one of the next likely um, periods based on those outer planet cycles for a major pandemic. Yeah, yeah. And these are you know, uh, um, Tarnas and Barbeau are the the giants whose shoulders I'm standing on uh, when I'm introducing. Like you know, the cycles of Venus and Mars in terms of how those play out in in a very similar conceptually in a very similar way to the way they point out. But obviously, since they're faster moving, um, they have a little more interaction um, year to year with people's overall horoscopes as opposed to just sort of uh, one specific position in the sky. But still, conceptually, I mean, it's it's a really great way to study mundane astrology is to understand. Um, individual planetary cycles and also but also the cycles of any two planets you know when they interact how often they interact where they interact by by aspect right um i mean it raises a really interesting broader point in discussion about prediction and astrology and about obviously the potential we can already see it here forming for you know that somebody could make long-term planetary long-term predictions about the future of Humanity and, and important turning points in in generations or in world history, based on outer planet cycles or taking into account generational astrology and things like that, and both the um, potential for doing that as well as some of the the limitations of that. Of if if you're talking about, let's say, something that's happening five decades in the future or six or seven decades in the future, like seventy years later, that you could identify some really important outer planet alignments or you could 
identify when certain generations would come to a really crucial turning point. Um, but you have to basically your best approach to that, partially in addition to planetary cycles, is looking at what happened the last time similar repetitions occurred in history mm. and making inferences. That becomes one of the keys to astrology is that by by like looking back into the past, you can then predict the future um, by seeing what those cycles correlated with in the past and then extrapolating from that into the future. Identifying the patterns and and yeah, looking for the repeats. Absolutely. Right. Absolutely. I, I mean, it's clear that's exactly how Burbo, for instance, an, anticipated a pandemic in 2020. Right. By looking back at, at past alignments yeah. of when that happened in the 20th century and earlier, seeing the the pattern and the repetition and then just extrapolating from that um, into the future. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you can, and you can kind of do that. I mean, that's also kind of the key to prediction to a certain extent in natal astrology as well, which is sitting down with a client and sometimes identifying. And one of the things that you'll do is you'll go back. And I remember you doing this with me early on, just as friends, like there would be an upcoming Venus retrograde coming up and you would, you would ask, you'd say what happened eight years before that during this part of the summer when the Venus retrograde was happening or what happened eight years before that. And sometimes that helps you to key into one, if that's an important retrograde for the person personally, because there's some retrogrades that are more important to certain people or less important. And then two, if there is a, a recurring theme that comes up in successive eight-year periods. That's right. I mean, it, it's a, it, that's a method that works best with astrology students, although a, a large number of my consultations are with people who are astrology students, who aren't just sort of coming in off the street and specific, just looking for advice. They're, they're, they're looking for that, but they're looking for insight into their, their chart. They're learning more about their own astrology chart. And, and so that approach works really well with those people. Um, you know, so uh, uh, the other degree of the, the other clients who come to me, just like, you know, from outside the astrology world, I'm a little less likely to use that approach because then I'm just sort of directly trying to sort of help them with the here and now. But as, but with astrology students to really sort of open up their understanding of their chart and 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 in doing so like understand their chart how their chart has responded to the transits of their times, pulling out things like the Venus um, synodic cycle works really well because you know you get a return every eight years and if you can establish a pattern if you're speaking to someone who's at least in their twenties or their thirties not only can you look at you know. Um, Three or four or five of of the of the pre-existing Venus returns that they've lived through, but you're equipping them, you're arming them to anticipate what the next four or five Venus returns that'll occur over the course of their lifetime might might mean for them, and um, that's where yeah, that's where it works really, really, really well with astrology students because astrology students are already, I mean, part of studying astrology, I think anyway, uh, involves recreating your timeline having a really strong understanding of your timeline of your chronology you know the better a grasp you have of that the 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 more you'll gain from uh studying astrology studying your life in astrology right to be able to identify and know when certain events happen in your past so that right. you can identify what planetary alignments co coincided with those placements in the past because then once you get their trajectory of certain things, you can then pinpoint when that theme is going to come up again or echo again in the future. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Um, and with Venus retrogrades, I mean, it'll usually it's staying in the same sign. So that's also 
happening in the same whole sign house then like every eight years. Right. Which simplifies things in terms of activating sometimes the topics of that house. Um, and then there's going to be some years where that where Venus might be activated as a time lord through perfections or something. So it's going to be more important compared to other years when maybe that's not activated. That's right. That's right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Um, so yeah, when I met you, um, okay, so you've got the sun in the first half of Scorpio, which is one of the places the Venus retrograde happens. You were born in 1984, so I would have automatically said, you know, I would have said, okay, so 1986 says you were turning two, which is a little early for your memory, but then maybe your parents said something to you about the age of two. And then, you know, 1994 is you were turning 10 years old. And then 2002 is you were turning 18. These are years where your solar return would have had a Venus retrograde very close to your sun. And uh, conceivably, you know, the, a pattern would have emerged out of that conversation. Mm. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. And then I just got very quiet and looked off into the distance, probably. <laughs> and I was like, just nodded, like, that, that's true. <laughs> and then don't say anything else. Because um, sometimes that's the, the awkward part of the astrologer is not, I don't know, just being able to identify certain things. I remember doing an anonymous reading where like five astrologers at a conference read, read somebody's chart anonymously and said some stuff. And then the person got up and then they didn't, they didn't say anything afterwards. And they were just like, thanks. And that was the end of the thing. And we were all kind of mystified. Right. And, uh, but then later learned that we had actually really touched on some stuff that's really true, but they just didn't feel comfortable yeah. talking about it publicly. And, and, you know, that's fine, actually. When I employ this technique, I always make it clear like, look, maybe it won't even occur to you now. I'm, I'm giving you the information and maybe you'll be like going off for a walk somewhere and you'll piece it together for yourself. And that's the important thing. It's not important that I know I mean, what it means. It's a little annoying if they, the client, common experience is like the client is like, no, nothing happened during that time frame. And then later in the consultation, they're like, oh yeah, I did get married during that <laughs> exactly, time frame. Yeah. I've, I've had that happen a few times. A few Look, times. I mean, it, it, sure, I, I guess it's annoying. But the important thing is that you're equipping the person to, uh, to understand and be able to track their ast astrological life from you know from their past and and project it towards the future so that so that they have some sense of their place in time and the times they live in and that's the main important thing so uh, you know sure it's nicer for us if we get to be clued into what the story is but that's not it's not absolutely necessary like if you think about what's absolutely necessary it's that the is that the subject the person involved that they understand what that Venus retrograde might mean for them. You're trying to, trying to say astrological consultations should primarily benefit the client? Yeah, All right. yeah I know it's wild. I know, I'm a little <laughs> uncomfortable with that as the astrologer. Prefer they benefit, uh, just joking. Uh, yeah, I know, I know. I know. Um, yeah, well, and so the part of the purpose of that is that you're helping a client to discover their own biography and their own narrative and their own mythos by applying astrology to their life and chronology and history and in doing so you start getting a much clearer idea of what the narrative arc of each person's life is yeah yeah uh you know very often astrology students will come to me and they want to know like i've got venus in such and such sign in the eighth house what does it mean and then, and my approach is not just to sort of i mean okay an, an astrologer can interpret it in the way they've learned and that can be useful it usually is but what's even more useful is, well, let's look at the transits you've had through that sign. Let's see what, let, you know, you tell me what it means, <laughs> you know, after we've looked at how 
that that house and that sign and that planet have interacted with transits over the years. That'll that'll say a lot more about what it quote unquote means than anything I can say, which will be abstract and true in a general sense, but but won't just sort of like perfectly fine tune it, customize it for that one human individual. Yeah, I love that feeling of that you're the astrologer and the client, but you're actually uncovering something together by going through the person's life history and life story, and you're like discovering something almost together as a team. Absolutely, absolutely. Because look, it, you know, they're the one who lived through it. They'll understand it far more than you ever will. You just understand it as a as a sort of as a system. Well, it's like both of you have different pieces of the puzzle. Yes, it's like they have, yeah. they have the story and they have the access to their memories. And you have um, the the, ast the astrology yeah. and like the the ability to see the background background um, like the wire framework of everything. Exactly. But then they yeah. they fill it in like the paint. Uh, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. You're showing them a kind of blueprint and and a, like a map. I mean, as, uh, astrology charts are, have been referred to as maps, and I think that's you know that's a legitimate way to think of them. And um, yeah, you're you're showing them around the map, but that you know the terrain is still theirs. You know, right? Yeah, um, that does bring up though one of the things that it kind of sucks doing consultations for like twenty year olds because they don't have as much life history to go back and like compare at that point. Sure. There's not as many like Venus retrogrades that you can ask them about in eight-year increments. No, but you can you can equip them with with knowledge that will prepare them for the rest of their lives. You know? Right. Um, so yeah, you know you don't always have to be asking them about the past. There's there's a there's a reason to do that, and it's useful. It's a little more useful, yeah, with people who are later in their twenties or in their thirties or onward, because there's just there's more to build on. You're you're standing on a higher plateau. But even with younger people, I mean, at, at the very least, you can read their chart. You're still equipped to, uh, you know, read read a horoscope, uh, read a, a, a nativity, and uh, and interpret it for the person. And and then from there, you know, show them around the blueprint. But it's just they don't know; they haven't had as much exposure to the terrain as an older person has. To take that metaphor that much further, yeah, there's not as much that's happened in there. There's going to be far more that hasn't happened yeah. in their life most of the time than has and therefore right. some of the things that might be implied or indicated to you as the astrologers sometimes will be things that they haven't experienced at all yet and and may still take decades to for them to build up to an experience yeah but uh, but then it's your job in that instance to just sort of prepare them for all that for, for prepare them for everything that's ahead as opposed to older people where you're you're doing that as well but you're also doing it on a foundation of everything that's happened up until then that's all. So it's it's um, there's 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 still a job to do in that case. It just it just shifts the the approach a little bit, right? You're doing less of one thing and more of another. All right. So let's take this back. I don't remember how we got here, but there might be something about how you can identify individual life stories and life narratives and a per person's mythos through astrology and through their history. But you can kind of more broadly also do that with, you know huge groups of people in generations by yeah. looking at outer planet cycles and sort of applying the same processes yeah absolutely absolutely um like we were saying the 60s you know or or the 90s or everything like that you had a whole entire generations of people sort of going through something together yeah well or even but in terms of like long scale history of like let's say two or three centuries right oh, okay i know one of your articles for example your article in an Easter journal in 2008 was Venus retrograde cycles of injustice and where you showed that in like eight year 
increments that some of these Venus retrogrades had really coincided with major turning points in terms of um, like racial issues in the United States and things like that. Yeah, yeah, um, absolutely. So that's, um, but that's less about sort of generations. That's looking at something that that uh, that's a pattern that just yeah holds throughout over the course of the history of the you know oldest Western democracy on the planet, um, which is yeah something in itself for sure. Yeah, I guess I was just thinking of it because then um, I'd watched that um, documentary that incorporated some of Tarnas's work, Changing of the Gods, yeah, and it was that. focusing on some of those outer planet cycles. It was mostly Uranus-Pluto, as I recall. I, I think yeah. the, the whole series was about Uranus-Pluto. They covered plenty just looking at that. Right. They didn't really get into Neptune or anything. They indicated that that could be done, but they really just focused on Uranus-Pluto. Yeah. Um, but one of the ones that was impressive was focusing on like the Uranus-Pluto conjunction in the 1960s and the um, civil rights movement, but then how it took some of that cycle back in history and showed how there had been other important turning points um, tied in with that cycle in the past that were tied in with what ev would eventually become the civil rights movement. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah. Um, you had those planets, uh, Uranus and Pluto were making conjunction in the late 1840s, early 1850s. You know, I was mentioning all the revolutions in Europe in 1848 that just preceded that, the the Irish potato famine and all that stuff. So that once those planets were making the conjunction, uh, you had the publication of Uncle Tom's Cabin, for instance, um, or in London, you had the great uh, um, sort of uh, uh, the first sort of world's fair where they were introducing all this science and technology to the world. Um, you know, all these sort of cultural, political, and technological revolutions uh, coinciding with with previous conjunctions as well. So yeah, I think, I mean, I certainly think they mentioned things like the publication of Uncle Tom's Cabin or uh, the famous um, meeting at Seneca Falls of, of you know, the, the proto-feminists uh, uh, of, uh, you know, uh, Elizabeth Cady Stanton and people like that. Um, yeah, these these earlier movements that sort of anticipate what happened in the 1960s yeah all right i'm trying to think of anything else related to generational astrology that we would really want to cover in this like introductory overview to the topic or any other conceptual things that are important or, or even long-term astrological cycles that become relevant to large groups of, of people yeah i mean you know we've been talking about uranus neptune and pluto so we haven't been talking about any of the Later planets have been found, um, but these are very slow moving, and I haven't sort of researched them over centuries and what have you. Um, right. Although they, that's not to say it shouldn't or couldn't be done. Like Eris seems like it's spending like a century in Aries or something. Yeah, like yeah, that. yeah. They're, they're very slow moving, so it's it's a little harder to do this approach. You'd you'd really have to be looking like a, at a major macro view of history in order for their cycles to make any sense to you whatsoever. Mm. Uh, but you can still look at say when when other planets come along and interact with those with those bodies. I'm sure there's something to be learned from that, right? Or you have the what used to be the ancient the, the traditional medieval approach to historical astrology, which is based on the Jupiter Saturn cycles right. that occur every 20 years. But then um, they'll occur in the same triplicities for uh, what like 200 years, something like that. Yeah, 200, yeah. and then eventually it cycles through. All of them and comes back to where it started almost a little under like a thousand years right. or so. Yeah. 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 Which is still, I mean, uh, a, a totally legitimate way to study history even now. Um, the Saturn Pluto conjunction of 2020 was also a Jupiter Saturn conjunction of 2020. 
Yeah. Um, and we just had a change, also a final it change. Just changed in the, elements, yeah. In the triplicity, because yeah. that uh, Jupiter Saturn conjunction was in Aquarius and an air sign. So now it's it's moved out of most of the 20th century. It was only taking place in Earth signs. Earth signs, yeah. And now it's fully switched to air signs for the next like 200 years. Right. It does the it does uh, an ingress, a regress, and an ingress. So in 1980, it happened in Libra, the first air sign, breaking the the Earth pattern. But then in 2000, it went back to Taurus. It returned one last time to the Earth pattern, and now it's fully in the air triplicity for the next 200 years. Yeah. Yeah. So that's really cool because then you start getting into not just generational astrology, but an even broader thing in terms of like epochs of human history. Yeah. yeah. When you're talking about like thousand year periods or two hundred year, yeah. three hundred year that's, periods, that's what makes that pattern really useful. Is, is looking at two hundred year increments. Yeah, yeah, and so like with you know human history and with human society and the history of humanity, which is very complicated and has so many different moving parts and variables and things that are going into you know the different turning points in history. Astrology similarly has all these different variables and cycles and things that are operating at different levels at different times that are, you know, similarly mirroring the sort of depth and complex complexity of what's happening with humanity. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. All right. Um, well, that's pretty, pretty cool, pretty extensive. I think we've done a pretty good job talking about all of the major um foundational things in ter- terms of this. I'm just trying to think if there's anything else. We should mention or or discuss. I mean, yeah, not not really. I mean, I, I guess in some sense we could keep going, but uh, um, I'm sort of drawing a blank. We've at least we've certainly touched on how each of the planets plays its own role in in this kind of a approach to astrology, approach to looking at generations or or you know macro generations or micro generations with Uranus. Um, there are different ways to break these down. Again, the titles that we're used to, uh, the the boomer Gen X, this you know these post-war terms are largely demographic and mostly in a in a demographic sense applied to the United States, and then by cultural extension applied to the rest of the Western world. Um, but they by no means define everyone in quite the same way, you know. Um, like in China, you know, China had a youth revolution during the Uranus-Pluto conjunction, the cultural revolution, but it was very different from the hippies. You know, it was state instigated, um, and um, but in its own way, mirrored what was happening in America in the sense that you had young people sort of taking over the culture and um, stating a strong divide with their elders. Um, but it it went in, you know, the, in a radically different direction than the american one yeah well and it's interesting from my perspective as an astrologer that maybe this is a better way of defining generations or a sharper way of defining generations that maybe is a little bit more universal in some sense yeah yeah i agree i agree actually this is this is a good point i'm glad we're getting to this um that's exactly the point like uh, you know um the, this sociological, socioeconomic model that we've used, this demographic model we've used for generations of saying like millennial, well, yeah, boomer, etc. Exactly. Uh, it's very Western, very specifically American, although it can extend to the West. Uh, it's it's demographic, um, but it's it's. What do you mean by demographic? It well, it it comes to. I mean, it was it, it it's initially defined by American demographics. Mm. You know, um, and then it. 
And then it gets these sort of cultural associations after the fact, but the actual designations are done by demographics, by, by booms or shrinkages in the population. Okay, population numbers. Yeah, that's what I mean by demographics, sorry. Um, but, but more broadly, I think that the astrological generations will say something more universal and will, infer, for instance, uh, um, represent what was happening to young people in China in the 60s and what was happening to people, young people in the United States or Europe in the 1960s. And there's something that's the same, and then there's something that's wildly different yeah. from region to region. And sometimes that can also be differentiated or accounted for by like things like national charts that are operating. Yeah, perhaps. Yeah. You know, potentially just theoretically, like, you know, the United States having like its own chart, let's say, versus whatever the chart is of of China or is of um you know, France or Russia or what have you. Sure. So different countries' charts may be also responding in different ways to different outer planet shifts or to different um, uh, generational shifts in terms of different people. Like maybe there's, I don't know, I want to say a generation that's like gets, fits in with a certain country's chart better, or gets a better, um, you know, uh, deal basically for a certain period of time relative to a country's chart versus another generation where it's like things are a little bit more rough in the country during that time or what have you. Sure, sure. Um, yeah, the the Chinese Communist chart um, in October of 1949 uh, is a very different chart than, say, the French Fifth Republic of January 1959. Um, and indeed, maybe it's the the, the Uranus Pluto conjunction in Virgo of, of the mid 60s. Uh, appears in different places in those respective charts, and maybe that says something about the difference in their youth revolutions. Uh, to, to some degree, the, 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 revol the, the youth movements in Europe mirrored the United States. A lot of them had to do with being anti-Vietnam as well as what was, you know, which was also happening in the U.S. Whereas the, the things happening in China had almost nothing to do with Vietnam, even though the country is adjacent to Vietnam, you know, ironically. So yeah, but um, but yeah, that that might be a thing to do. But I think going back to just purely defining generations by on astrological terms, I think there you really do have the potential to look at these matters globally uh, without getting caught up in the in the nuances if one doesn't want to, but just to make the sort of the broader statements, like Barbeau talking about pandemics happening at Saturn Pluto conjunctions, you know, which are things that can happen everywhere. And most certainly did in this instance. Yeah, yeah, for sure, and and definitely, you know, impacted different countries in different ways, for better or worse. But then also, was but something visibly impacted everyone. Yeah, that we yeah. shared that everybody right. around the globe was impacted by in some way during that period of time, and and also captured or spoke to something about the moment of. And, and the essence of of what the world was sort of experiencing collectively at that time, exactly. Which convert, you know, again, we can go back to Uranus Pluto in the in nineteen sixties, which also had this sort of broad global impact, even if the outcome was a little different from country to country. That there was something broadly and universally uh, felt around the world. Yeah. And then also, you know, sometimes there can be like the rise and fall of different countries or different governments. Like for example, in the late 1980s and early 1990s, when you did have that 
a cluster of planets in Capricorn, which was like Saturn, Uranus, Uranus Neptune, and yeah. Neptune that formed a triple conjunction in Capricorn in the late 80s and early 90s. And then you saw the fall of the, the dissolution of the Soviet Union and then the rise of the modern Russian state. The rise of the modern Russian state. You also saw the collapse of apartheid in South Africa and, uh, uh, you know, some of the adjacent African nations declaring uh, independence. Um, and, um, and even in uh, Central and Latin America, um, you had countries also like Nicaragua having an important revel, you know, having suffered a civil war for so many years, finding resolution to that. So a lot of things changing around the globe in different ways. But yeah, it was very universally felt. Yeah. Something this is all bringing me back to recently somebody was asking me like who they could go to for a course to study mundane astrology and i didn't really have anyone to recommend them because one of the problems is that mundane astrology is really complicated and i think that's a nice little thing to get to i think we've gotten to at this point in realizing that mundane astrology is really complicated because there's so many moving pieces and so many variables and so many different ways you can look at it and um generational astrology in some sense there there becomes even though we've been partially talking about it in a natal context of like different individuals that are born in part of different generations um there starts to get some real overlap here with mundane astrology at this point yeah. and generational astrology becomes one of the complicating factors for doing mundane astrology i yeah my advice for anyone studying mundane astrology is you know read a lot of books that aren't astrology books <laughs> you know uh this is, read sociology um read books about demography read books about uh you know war disease you know um geopolitics absolutely you know study economics all the all these things all the uh, every any branch of knowledge can be astro astrologized you know um and and any yeah, any of these disciplines can be a study in astrology. Uh, and the better a handle you have on all these things, um, I think the more you can enhance what you're doing with mundane astrology. It's not a vacuum. It's not like a, a natal consultation where to some degree you have a stranger coming to you and all you have is this sort of abstract model of who they are and you sort of bring it to life uh, with your interpretive skills. That's not mundane astrology at all. Mundane astrology is a little more passive where you're you're looking at all these different areas and correlating information collecting and uh, uh analyzing it so it's it's not as sort of aggressively interpretive it, it it depends a lot more on sort of receiving a lot of different uh channel many different channels of information and integrating them and, and looking at them yeah and then lies the difficulty in needing to be good at all of those different areas or, or well read and and have a you know education in all of the, those different areas rather than just specializing in in one or something like that yeah yeah and and really if you're someone who just reads astrology books you know uh you, you might make a really great um you know uh reader of nativities but it that doesn't in itself prepare you i think for mundane astrology you really have to be engaged with the world yeah well that's one of the things i love about astrology and one of the things that i um I'm so grateful that I discovered it when I did in my teens and early 20s is it gave me a reason and a motivation to want to study all of these different fields because yeah. of the application to astrology in those fields and that it's not enough just to know the astrology you also have to learn that field and it's the combination of being good at both of those things that can make you good at applying astrology to it but it becomes 
um, the the like passion for astrology and the interest in just like looking up the planetary cycles or wanting to know what's the chart for that or what's the astrological correlation with that becomes a reason to study different fields and and have exposure to them or study history and biography and other things like that. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah, it it's it, it, in itself your you, you know your passion for astrology can goad you into all these other areas of knowledge that you wouldn't necessarily have considered, you know, relevant to your life until you you realize that oh, I but if I do study sociology, I'll understand astrology more, which and that in itself um motivates. Right. Yeah. Um and that was something for you I know that was appealing about astrology and to begin with I think that we talked about in the last episode was just that you're already interested in biography in and of itself as a, right. as a genre yeah. like individual biographies of of individuals whether they're autobiographies or or written by somebody else or some combination of the two just establishing somebody's life story and that being interesting in and of itself but then yeah. astrology provided a unique angle for approaching biography yeah. So yeah, it it astrology was was very easily uh, attached to my existing interests when I discovered astrology, but also in turn, it 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 was like um, it it poured gasoline on my interests and let those flames spread further. You know, uh, it 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 took me in in a much uh, it, it carried me a greater distance than would have happened if I'd just carried on reading biographies, but never been engaged with astrology. For sure, it it, it uh, it's a two way street, right? Yeah. All right, brilliant. That's beautiful. All right, all right. Well, I think that's it for this episode. So, where can people find out more information about you and your work? What do you have coming up? What are you working on? I'm working on a lot of stuff that I'm not ready to sort of announce because it's not it's not at that stage. But I, I am keeping busy, and there will be a product <laughs> in the future. Uh, but I can be found at nickdaganbestastrologer.com. Um, I, my books are open for consultations. I absolutely love giving consultations, and um, especially astrology students like to come to me, and I can um, certainly help them in ways I think that are unique to me as an astrologer. So if uh, if that fascinates people, they should feel welcome to reach out. Brilliant. Well, yeah. I'll put a link to your website in the description below Great, this video or on the podcast website. But thanks a lot for joining me today. Thanks for having me, Chris. It's been a joy. You're my favorite millennial. My fa your favorite? Okay, you're my favorite Gen X. Really? More than Kurt Cobain? No, thank you. I mean, yeah, he <laughs> is a Pisces, but I have, I have a soft spot for the Leo Risings. Okay, well, yeah, thank you. As, right. as an Aquarius Rising. Yeah. Um, all right, that's it. Thanks, everyone, for watching or listening to this episode of the Astrology Podcast, and we'll see you again next time. Special thanks to all the patrons that helped us support the production of this episode of the podcast through our page on patreon.com. In particular, shout out to the patrons on our producers tier, including Thomas Miller, Catherine Conroy, Christy Moe, Ariana Amour, Mandy Ray, Angelique Nambo, Issa Sabah, and Jake Otero. If you like the work that I'm doing here on the podcast and you would like to find a way to support it, then please consider becoming a patron through my page on patreon.com. And in exchange, you'll get access to bonus content such as early access to new episodes, the ability to attend the live recording of the month ahead forecast each month, access to a private monthly auspicious elections report that we put out each month, access to exclusive episodes that are only available for patrons, or you can also get your name listed in the credits at the end of each episode. For more information, go to patreon.com slash astrologypodcast. The main software we use here on the podcast to look at astrological charts is called SolarFire for Windows, 
which is available at alabe.com, and you can use the promo code AP15 to get a 15% discount. For Mac users, we use a similar set of software by the same programming team called AstroGold for Mac OS, which is available from astrogold.io, and you can use the promo code ASTROPODCAST15 to get a 15% discount on that as well. If you'd like to learn more about the approach to astrology that I outline on the podcast, then you should check out my book titled Hellenistic Astrology, The Study of Fate and Fortune, where I traced the origins of Western astrology and reconstructed the original system that was developed about 2,000 years ago. And in this book, I outline basic concepts, but also take you into intermediate and advanced techniques for reading a birth chart, including some timing techniques. So you can find out more about the book at hellenisticastrology.com book. The book pairs very well with my online course on ancient astrology called the Hellenistic Astrology Course, which has over 100 hours of video lectures where I go into detail about teaching you how to read a birth chart and showing hundreds of example charts in order to really demonstrate how the techniques work in practice. So find out more information about that at theastrologyschool.com. And finally, special thanks to our sponsors, including the Mountain Astrologer magazine, which is available at mountainastrologer.com, the Honeycomb Collective Personal Astrological Almanacs, available at honeycomb.co, and the AstroGold Astrology app, which is available for iPhone and Android. You can find out more information about that at astrogold.io. There's also a major astrology conference happening this year that's being hosted by the International Society for Astrological Research. And that's happening August 25th through the 29th, 2022 in Westminster, Colorado. You can find out more information at isar2022.org.